The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, put down that ruby doobie and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 482 with guest Leon Gersing, recorded live Monday, August 24th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Redgate Software, essential tools for SQL Server, .NET, and Exchange. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who thinks Jimmy Hoff is hiding out in Leon's beard, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard here for you for your, the next hour or so. Hey, Richard. Howdy, sir. How are you? Good. Now that that's out of the way, let's get into better now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, the quick intro. Let's go. Now that that's out of the way, let's get into better know framework. I don't know. I'm just feeling very – I'm feeling the pressure from Scott Hanselman who's like, don't waste my time. Don't waste my time. Go yeah. faster. Go faster. I got an email just like that for you today. I want to listen to this thing on speed read and not get bored. Okay, so uh, so better know framework today. We're going to talk about system.windows.media.text formatting, which is where all the types are, the control formatting of text and WPF, typically at a lower level than the control-based text presentation or the text object model. Huh. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Not really. Not really, but you got to know it's there. You got to know it's there. You got to format text. You got text embedded objects, you have text end of line, you have text formatter, text hidden, text line, text line break, text this, text that, text the other thing. Go check it out yourself. I got, there's one interesting one in here, text run, which represents a sequence of characters that share a single property set. Huh. Isn't that interesting? It is interesting, yeah. So, so if you've got a, I'm, I'm thinking of this for formatting, right? If you've got a lot of things that uh, all have the same, you know, you know, property set. So any change to the format, like font style, foreground color, uh, breaks the text run. Right. And there's an example of how to change formatting in a text string that results in a series of text runs, and each has a common set of formatting properties. 
So it's a way of grouping like objects together. Cool. According to their format. So Richard, got an email? Quick, hurry. In the spirit of Scott Hanselman, get ready Run. for this. Go, go, go. Hi, Carl and Richard. I just finished listening to a net latest episode of .NET Rocks with Sahil Valak. It's one of the best episodes ever. It is both informative <laughs> and entertaining. It was a pity it wasn't recorded yet. We started that large share part project last year. Keep up the good work, Vladek. I love it. That's a good email. Thank you, Vlad. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas, criticism, send us an email. .NET Rocks at Franklin's.net. And with that, let's introduce our friend Leon Gersing. Leon has been bringing value to clients large and small for over 10 years and has a passion for technology, art, and community. He's worked professionally on the .NET platform since its release and recently joined Edgecase in Columbus, Ohio, with a focus on building agile solutions using Ruby and Ruby on Rails. A believer in building strong communities, Leon spends time presenting on a wide variety of development topics at events and user groups in the region. He loves nothing more than to be around other developers working together to create something unique and fresh, something that has never been done before. He believes there is no challenge that can't be overcome with passion and creativity. He spends his spare time with his wife, two beautiful girls, two sweet kitties, and his ukulele. Welcome, Leon. Thanks, guys. What's up? So the troublemaker of DevLink. <laughs> I'm the troublemaker of just about any party I go to. Yeah, yeah you're a troublemaker at CodeMash, too, as I recall. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, anytime I can stir the pot, I might as well do it. Although, I'll also give you this compliment. As I was headed up to the open spaces section at DevLink, I had to step around Leon's holding court. There must have been <laughs> 30 guys sitting in the hallway in a ring around Leon. That's great. I don't even know what you guys were arguing about, but you were obviously winning. Well, we weren't. We weren't actually arguing. Uh, a couple of guys had asked if um, I would give them a Rails from the ground up kind of oh, tutorial, wow. and I said, "All right, grab your laptops." And really, it started with three of us, and then somebody would walk by and say, "Hey, what are you guys doing?" And I said, "Well, we're learning Ruby on Rails from the ground up." And they wanted to see the no fluff stuff. They wanted to know exactly what was being generated, exactly what's in the framework, and exactly how they can leverage it. Right. So that's what we did. You basically did an impromptu session. Yeah, it was. It certainly lasted as long as the uh, morning session I did on the cones. It was, I think, three hours we were in that hallway. Holy cow. Yeah, I was pretty tired at the end. I was like, guys, I need a, I need a drink. All right, come on. <laughs> I need something. So yeah. we we invited you here because during the uh, DevLink panel show a few weeks ago, we uh, you came up to the microphone and the topic was uh, is software development too complex and and of course we had a lot of .NET people on the panel, um, but we did at the beginning of the show open it up to the discussion to software in general. You know, right. I want to focus on .NET in particular, and uh, you stepped up the microphone and said .NET's complex, Ruby's great. Everything else sucks. Read about it. And turned around and walked away. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I'm, paraphrasing. I'm sure that's what everyone heard. I'm paraphrasing. No, but no, I think somewhere it, in there he also said none of you are qualified to comment on Ruby, too. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> well, no, I think if I remember right, and I, have to, I haven't listened back to that show yet. I don't know if it's been released at the time we're recording this. And and I, I think, Carl, you brought up, you said, well, is Ruby going to save us all or something? It was very, like... I, I don't want to say flip, but it was a little flip, right? Absolutely. Uh, um, That's my job to be flip. Yeah, exactly. Stir the pot. Stir Fire, the pot. You know, stick the, poke the bear. Um, and I saw two or three people with with very little Ruby experience immediately turn it off, immediately shut down, and that 
flies in the face of everything I think software craftsmen and developers and architects uh, should be doing when they evaluate any solution. You should never just say, oh, well, no, of course not. That, that won't work for me. You've got to look into it. You have to understand it. And I, I'd happen to be in a couple of open spaces with some of those people, not all, but some who were saying those things, um, flat out admitted that they knew nothing of Ruby or what it had to offer, yet felt free and confident to sit on a panel and say it has no value to them. Um, I, I think that's a dangerous road that we can go on. And if we're looking to this panel of experts as people that should be our thought leaders, I think that they should set a better example. Yeah, well, to also, to be fair, you know, when you, when you approach any panel or you evaluate it, you have to take the expertise of the panelists as face value. I mean, and I think that's, that's probably what you're just saying is that, you know, we can't, when we have a panel, we can't obviously get a representation for a representative of every technology out there. So you have to, you have to, yeah, you had to understand that there, these were .NET guys. And well, girls. of course. And if I were sitting on a panel and somebody asked me to evaluate Spring's relevance in Java, I would probably say something to the effect of, I'm not familiar with I'm it. I'm not familiar with it, yeah. yeah not I'm not that guy. Uh, I, I certainly wouldn't go, well, Spring is completely irrelevant. Yeah. Because well, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, maybe it is, maybe it's not. <laughs> I don't recall anyone saying that, but I do no, recall, no, it, no, no, no. I do it, recall it being dismissed. Yeah. But yes, it did feel it did feel dismissed. So that's and and that was only that was my only point. And I didn't want to necessarily start a flame war. I was just yeah. saying I don't believe that you can universally dismiss what I believe to be the right kind of abstraction um, language level instead of building more and more products to make other languages do things that they're not inherently able to do. Well, let's let's finish that discussion because the panel topic was. Has software development gotten too complex? And you basically said, uh, .NET is complex. Everything else is easy. Well, and I, I, wouldn't, that, I wouldn't say everything else. Well, that's but I what would you say said, that There are though. certainly alternatives that are easier. That's what you said. <laughs> I did not say everything else. You said everything I? else is not. Oh, okay. Well, let me take that back then. All if right. That's exactly what I because said. Because I'm looking at shrinkster.com slash 18... XL right now, which lists PHP MVC frameworks, MVC frameworks written in PHP, and there's 71 of them. Sure. So, you know. I don't know the complexity of those particular. And I don't, I mean, is, is multiple choice uh, yeah, yeah. analogous to complexity? Yeah, no, no, but it certainly makes the, uh, that was one of the topics on the on the panel was, you know, too much technology, so many options, so many ways to do the same thing because Microsoft is like a software factory and they just churn out these solutions that how do you, first of all, how do you know what to pick? And second of all, when you go to sit down and install it, how do you know what's the current version of anything? Because try to find the current version of anything on the internet and it's really difficult. So the barrier to entry is, is complex just because of the sheer volume of options that you have. Sure, and that and that's to that is to be certain. But when you start narrowing down your specific needs, then that that window gets significantly smaller. Now, mm -hmm. you may not want to say. So you may say, "All right, I'm starting with a web app, and I'm on the .NET platform, so I've got two choices now." Well, yeah. you've got more than two choices, and two yeah. choices is pretty easy to evaluate, right? I don't think anybody's going to argue that. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, especially I think where you get into a lot of issues is the whole data layer thing. I mean, data access technologies are gone. And not only data access, but 
but architectural tools, I mean, you know, whether to use an ORM or not, which one, what flavor, uh, code generation. I mean, there's just so many options and ways to do it. And, and probably no matter what platform you're on, you have these kinds of options. Sure. So. And, uh, but I don't see choice as a barrier. I, think, I don't think choice is analogous to complexity in any no, way. Not, not by itself, but when you add on top of that, you know, CTPs and beta-1s and SP-1s and SP-2s and got to get this version. Oh, but that page, yeah. that version has been updated, so the page that you're reading that says you got to get this one is no longer valid, but it's still out there. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, your vendor, if you're in a vendor-specific area, they'll tell you what you're supposed to have. And if you're behind a firewall, then you'll probably have something in your ELA that says what version you can actually accept. So that's yeah. going to limit your choices, too. If you're starting from Greenfield, you're going to look at choices that are basically going to give you the lowest cost of entry, right? So yeah. you want a low TOC and a high ROI, and those things, I think, are a little easier to see from 50,000 feet up. Yeah, I as and I'm speaking purely about .NET because that's been my experience and and the in the complexity of the complexity is higher because of the barrier to entry because of these constant releases of things sure. and not knowing what you know it, it's it's great when you can just take a product off the shelf the install one install put it all in there and you have all the choices that you need you know in check boxes right there in that one product and it doesn't require any external things. So, hmm. Yeah, I, I, I nice. would be the opposite. I like to pull from a lot of different sources. I like to configure as I'd like. And I want the, I want the flexibility to open it up after I've installed it and see if uh, maybe the internals are something I want to shake around. Because when I get things like version numbers that I can use, if there's, if there's something wrong in there, then, then I'm, I'm stuck with it. So yeah. I used to do uh, SharePoint consulting like three years ago, right? And uh, we do this custom SharePoint code, and that version of the API was busted. Okay, so there were calls that were, uh, the APIs themselves were literally broken. They didn't, they didn't work. So, you know, I would go and submit a patch to connect.microsoft.com or whatever, and they'd say, great, we got it. Uh, we submitted it as a bug. Um, we'll let you know when it's released. Never got into another service pack. Never heard anything about it. Never, I mean, it never, ever worked again. Uh, again, I haven't looked in the last year, but for a long time it didn't work. Yeah. For me, that limits my ability to reduce the complexity of my project. I can't re- depend on something that uh, is basically broken. Well, that's a total vendor lock-in you had there, and there's only one source to be fixed. You have no alternatives. That's absolutely right. Uh, and to me, that is a that is a very ne- that's a big negative when 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 picking yep. any product. That really, really sucks. And it, it you know, and it's been in this business forever. I mean, use any third party tool, you're beholden to them. Sure, yeah. absolutely. We definitely deal with folks now that are totally fearful of third party tools of any kind because the moment Microsoft moves and makes a new version of anything, you're now stuck waiting. I can't upgrade until these four other companies get around to upgrading too. Mm, and then you end up with this great not invented here mentality where you have to actually build everything that you see outside of your sandbox that looks cool. You have to build it internally, which usually given to scope and time is far inferior to the product that you wish you could use. 
Yeah, and, and you'll never get it better. And but that builds its own problem, which means I I can't upgrade my app now because there's so much code that needs to be written. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a problem. That's definitely a problem. So tell us about Ruby. Tell oh, us about your experiences start? with Ruby. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm currently having a love affair with Ruby. I've had I've been having it for I don't know three or four years now. Um, mainly because of I would say my experience as an ASP.NET developer. Uh, there were a lot of things that I wish I had, I wish I could do, wanted to get to, that have started to come along, that, that over time did come along. Um, but as peeking over the fence, I saw things that were happening in the Python community and in the Ruby community that seemed to be addressing the very problems that I was having. Um, time to market, complexity, um, the ability to actually just, I don't know, handle a request that comes in from my uh, server. Um, without a lot of obfuscation. Um, so for me, I was a win, uh, like a web forms developer, ASP.NET web forms developer, trying to do those, those simple websites, those simple things, uh, easily and quickly. And I thought that Django was doing it really well, and I thought that Rails was doing it really well. And for my mind, I just happened to fall in love with the community that was happening in Ruby. Um, and the things, the, how, how the people were actually gravitating towards the technology and the way they were um, really, really uh, impressed me. So that was naturally where I gravitated to. Because Ruby's not all young language, right? It's been around for quite a while. And yet, a few years ago, it suddenly became rather hip. Yeah, I, I, mean, I think you can trace its hipness directly to Rails. Uh, I think that's the easiest thing, right? It's, Ruby was around in 19, I think 92 was when it was released. Uh, Matsumoto created it. So, uh, if you hear the term like MRI, that's Matsumoto's uh, Ruby interpreter. That's the C-based interpreter that, that is, uh, what Ruby really is when we talk about Ruby. Uh, typically at least. Um, but yeah, it, it was, uh, relatively slow for the time, but that wasn't its main focus. One of the things I've heard Matt's say is that one of the key key uh, building blocks, one of the foundations of Ruby is this concept of beauty in code, uh, the true marriage of form and function. Uh, so it's not necessarily that it has to be the most highly proficient language on the planet. There are plenty of languages that do that, but it's the one that can most elegantly speak the language of the domain. It's the one that really bridges the language gap between the business and the developer and the developer and ultimately the machine. That's something that really appealed to me. And I think the community really picks up on that. In fact, that one community member who's kind of up and vanished in the last week, uh, uh, why or why the lucky stiff, uh, he wrote one of these great Ruby manuals called Wise uh, Poignant Guide to Ruby. That was so bizarre. It was out in left field. It had nothing but cartoon foxes and crazy idioms in it. But it taught Ruby in such a beautiful and elegant and madcap way that I was hooked. I was fascinated with not only the language, but the story. Now, when we talk about Ruby, you say Rails is sort of the reason why people fell in love with it. Rails is a development environment for web applications, right, that sort of has a lot of built-in scaffolding and uh, for those who don't know what that is, just sort of support support code that's already sort of there. Isn't that true? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a decent way to put it. I mean, Rails is essentially a web framework. That's it. It's a framework for building web applications. So it's not a dev environment. 
It's not a dev environment. Yeah, most people work in Emacs or Vim or TextBait or RubyMine, whatever you want to work in. That's that's your IDE. That's whatever you want. But Rails itself is essentially a. I've heard it described as a domain-specific language or a DSL for writing web applications. Everything you write for your application, you're writing in Ruby, and it's just the Ruby dialect of building a web app. That's really it. It's really a language custom-built for web applications. Yes, absolutely. So if you're uh, setting up your, your, uh, your data layer and you need uh, these various schemas to be inputted at various times, there's a class that deals with what we call migrations, which actually defines schemas but does it in Ruby. Um, so if you're defining something in Ruby and the minute it goes up, you also want to add a bunch of data, you can add that data in Ruby. Uh, configuration, instead of having a mountain of pointy, stabby XML files, um, we'll, we'll simply do our configuration in a compiled language that can be tested in Ruby. Um, it's just that. We treat data as code, and code is data in Ruby, and we might as well live by that. And that's how we've done it. And I think that that makes it very easy. It makes a very low barrier of entry for developers who are trying to just get a job done. And in that world, it's getting the job of writing a web app done. I'm just trying to get past this whole XML is pointy and stabby thing. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, some would argue that XML was never really meant to be human-readable, right? That it's, it's meant to be parsed by a machine. That's, that's, its, that's its job. And it does it very well. Um, you know, I'm not going to decry the <laughs> what, you know, uh, I'm not going to vilify XML. XML certainly has a place. But I think it's taken on this kind of role of the dynamic configuration bit in Java and in .NET. And I don't necessarily know that most of those things are, uh, I don't know that they're, they're appropriate uh, for the level of abstraction you're trying to gain. I think they usually end up being these runtime hacks where we put some stuff in, we read up the XML, we parse it, put it into some other domain object, which is usually just a direct reflection of the serialized version of it, which is the XML. Um, and then from there, we do some other stuff to it. Well, we just cut out that serialization point, just put it all in Ruby. Done. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik, without whose support, this show surely would not exist. You know, summer is peaking, and our friends at Telerik are working full steam. They've just released the Q2 volume of the Telerik Premium Collection for .NET, which is their biggest release yet. Packed with new things, it'll surely excite anyone who has anything to do with .NET development. Let's start with Silverlight and the introduction of the first commercial 3D chart on the market. It is developed as True Vector 3D, which guarantees swift performance and rich capabilities like rotation, animations, etc. Another major announcement is the Telerik Silverlight Scheduler, which is packed with tons of features, even in the first version. Telerik's flagship, RAD Controls for ASP.NET Ajax, grows not only with four new controls, but also with new productivity tools. Take the new Visual Style Builder, an online application that allows you to visually modify skins or design new ones with point and click. And if that's not enough, they've added a completely new product, a free testing framework powered by Art of Test for automating Ajax and Silverlight-rich Internet applications. Since I'm short on time here, I can't enumerate all the new features and enhancements in the Telerik Reporting, Open Access ORM, and their Windows Forms products, so I'll leave it for you to check them out at Telerik.com. And don't forget to say thank you for supporting .NET Rocks.
Yeah, um, um, so for those who have never used it, I'm trying to, you know, when you were naming off all those things, well, I just do it in Ruby. I mean, I could say the same thing about C Sharp from not having, you know, seen too much Ruby. Um, yeah, sure. Like some most things, uh, I mean, they are application level languages, right? They're object oriented programming language. C Sharp and Ruby both serve that that purpose. Um, they're both strongly typed. Um, the differences come in its dyna- dynamism, right? If I can say that word, uh, comes in the fact that while they're both strongly typed, Ruby is dynamically typed, whereas C Sharp is statically typed. Um, which allows us to make a lot more declarations at runtime. We have uh, we have differences of opinions on those two languages on what inheritance means, uh, what is the best way to do inheritance. Uh, so in uh, C sharp, you've got single level inheritance, right? Single class inheritance, and then you can create basically these interfaces that are. Uh, ways to decide, okay, this particular class will respond to this contract, right? It's very static. It's very, this is what it is. It's not really going to change. Um, if it changes, it's a, re- it's a recompilation. We've got to deploy more code. That's it. And that works for some situations. In some situations, you're going to need the speed of those compiler optim- pre-optimizations, and that static language is going to provide that. But when you don't, when you can mitigate that in some other way, um, you can get your, uh, you can assemble your classes at runtime. You could assemble your object graph at runtime as needed. In Ruby, we have single object inheritance, but we also have the idea of a mix-in. So we have modules that can be mixed in at any time that allow us to extend, uh, redact, change, basically change code as it lives. And that really helps us get rid of some of the kludgy mechanisms that we see in that that have kind of come up in the Java and the C sharp worlds, like dependency injection. Dependency injection is something that exists because those are statically typed languages that can't necessarily do the evaluation at runtime in an elegant way. So we have to load them up from configuration and figure out what we're doing, set type statically, uh, and continue. Whereas in Ruby, we could just you know. Add it at runtime. Do whatever we want. We can make any class anything we want it to be. So, so how is does that make it a? Um, how does its dynamism make it a, a a class that's suited exactly for web development? I don't know if it's just uh, suited specifically to web development, but. Um... A lot of it would have to be, uh, well, I mean, yeah, I, I don't even think it's limited to just web development, to be honest with you. I think anything where uh, runtime expectations are, uh, even compile time, all right, so design time or runtime expectations are unknown. Various bits might be not known. Um, it makes it a lot easier to define the meta uh, of the domain and handle that. So let me give an example. So in uh, in Active Record, which is the ORM for Rails, right? There's the notion of the dynamic finder. So in most um, repository patterns, there's this idea of model dot find, and then you can pass in whatever you know criteria you need to find a particular object. Uh, in C sharp, it's going with repository and the specification pattern, right? 
So we'll use the Lambda to determine exactly what object that we want to, or exactly what data we want to retrieve from our object store, right? Um, so uh, it, if we get rid of that and we go with a dynamic finder, then uh, we can have a very clean API that reads more like human language uh, and reads more like the domain we're trying to specify. Um, so there's the base one, which is just find. So that's the one that's, that's defined. So there's object.find, and you pass in an ID or a key, the primary key, and it'll go and fetch the object. But we don't necessarily know what every object's properties are going to be, but we may want to search by them later, right? So uh, we may have a uh, blog post, right? And so the blog post can have a title. So we may also want find by title. Um, it may have a slug, so the concatenated URL, right? So we might also want a method that is find by slug. Now, it would be very tedious to do this in a statically typed language. You'd have to define each method. You'd probably be reusing the same method over and over again. Your code uh, would get littered and peppered with all of these finders that you want. Well, since Ruby is dynamic and it has message passing, and we can talk about that in a minute, um, we've, you can implement one method called method missing, which will catch any method that that particular object or class will not respond to. Um, and at that point, we can have some smarts around it. So we have find. And if you pass in find underscore by underscore x, or whatever x happens to be, we can be smart about it and say, oh, well, x represents the slug, so let's build the actual SQL statement to find the slug for this name. And let's add this method that you've just asked for directly to our class so that any other instances of this particular class can also ask for find by slug and get it. So we'll basically emit a new method to that class on that class exactly, not a reflected right. mock proxy class, the actual class. We're going to change that to actually fit our needs, and each subsequent uh, call to it will be fast because it's already a member. So that's the kind of dynamism that, that really makes uh, something like Rails shine. Keeps your code concise, keeps it very simple. So I guess the point is that the dynamism works really well in ASP.NET or in any kind of development. Oh, absolutely. I mean, these concepts are universal. I mean, we want to write less code. We want to code... Um, the ideas of our domain. We want to make sure that the concepts are mapped. We don't want to be stuck writing the same boilerplate code that could literally be generated for us either by the language itself or by something else um, to kind of mitigate the, the crap that nobody wants to do. Does it make it challenging to debug an app when it's this dynamic? Um, I think it can. And I think uh, certainly new Rubyists tend to... Um, be over uh, overprotective in their code, right? So they're doing they sometimes. So if you're coming from a you know statically typed language, you uh, what I'll see is I'll see uh, a lot of type checking. So they they basically there's no type system in Ruby, but people add it, right? So is it type this? Own, is yeah. it type that? And that doesn't that actually goes against some of that dynamism. You're actually kind of taking it away if you're always type checking. Um, we have something in Ruby called duck typing which just allows us to basically just ask, does a particular instance or object that's been sent to me, um, does it respond to a method? If it doesn't respond to a method, then I can simply just move on. I don't, I don't have to invoke it on there or anything. But if it does, I don't care where it came from. 
This is a duct tape. If it looks like a duck, acts like yeah, a duck, yeah. quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Um, so if you send me uh, a dog and I say, can you quack? And the dog says, yeah, I can quack. Then I can just ask it to quack and, and we're fine. We're happy. I don't really care whether it's a duck or not. I don't care. doesn't matter. So you don't need to query to see if it has an interface implemented. You just want to know if it has a quack method. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I guess that's the clever bit there. It's just this ability to... Well, and the other aspect of this, I guess, is everything has to be an object then. Because anything can have a method. We're talking about a variable here. Yeah, right. well, anything. And in fact, everything in Ruby is, in fact, an object. Right. The class itself that defines other objects or instances of that class, that class is an object. And in fact, you can actually send methods to the class of an object instance if you want to. Uh, it's a very, very complex and interesting system. And it all basically revolves around message passing. So I totally understand your love affair with Ruby. What are there? Is, is Ruby, do people argue that Ruby is great for simple websites, but for really complex things where there's a lot of stuff going on? Ruby might not be the right tool for the job. Like, when is Ruby not the right tool for the job? I've yet to come across the scenario in my life where Ruby was not appropriate. Now, there are times when Ruby can be supplemented with another language that would be more appropriate. So if I needed things like, uh, you know, there was I was going to do a messaging system, right? I may write the whole thing in Rails, um, but then when we got to the actual messaging part, that may be a little too slow, and Ruby uh, doesn't deal with concurrency as well as it could. Um, but I can flip out to something like OCaml or right. Erlang or something else that's really good at just that one part, and I can write 20 lines of Erlang to do that, that messaging bit and still stay in Ruby for everything else. Right. Yeah, I was thinking that something really mathematically intensive might be better served in a, in a language that's really heavily math-oriented. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, and that would be the first thing I would say, you know what, this isn't, this isn't Ruby, let's, let's ship that off. And Ruby's really good at dealing with the operating system, no matter which one it is, so it can just simply call out to whatever it does, yeah. get the return value, and continue processing as it would. And hopefully I would think that people on the .NET framework, once they have a full DLR um, version of Iron Ruby, I, I would hope they maybe even look to C-sharp as that sub-language, or even F-sharp as that sub-language. Now, are there, are there times where you miss things in the .NET framework that you wish were there? Wow, that's a setup. Here comes all your emails, right? You can just forward these on to me. No, <laughs> <laughs> no there, there's really not a whole lot. Well, th it's nice to have a vendor to blame every now and then. That's nice. Um, I don't deal with many vendors at the moment. Um, so if something goes wrong, it's nice to be able to call up my uh, evangelist or somebody and say, hey, can you get somebody online to fix this? Uh, but on the other hand, then the, the person who gets to fix it usually is me because I can. Right. So. <laughs> uh, but no, I would say there's uh, there's certain things that are you know nice about the .NET uh, framework. Would maybe uh, I don't know that IDE is really nice. Yeah, they've spent a lot of time making Visual Studio really nice, and uh, I miss ReSharper every now and then. But I guess <laughs> I guess you're not you know in a web application you're not necessarily using a lot of the plumbing stuff. You know the the IO and the diagnostics and and all that stuff. Exactly. No, not really. So what about Iron Ruby? Because this is going to be a version of Ruby that lives in Studio, right? 
Yeah, and I'll tell you what, Iron Ruby. If I mean, if you're at all interested in Ruby and you're on that platform, on the .NET platform, please, please go look at it. Maybe contribute to it. Um, the The implementation is done in C sharp, so it's it's a pretty one for one. Uh, first and foremost, they're basing the entire thing off the Rubinius test suite. Um, so Rubinius is basically a, a, a project in the Ruby community that looks to basically write Ruby in Ruby. Um, so it's a Turing complete language. So to do that, because there's no real spec, um, they essentially unit tested all of Ruby, the, the language, right. at least at the MRI version of it. So uh, from Iron Ruby's perspective, they're actually going against that test suite to see if Ruby is feature complete with the C version of Ruby which I think is amazing. So Microsoft has a tendency and has done in the past where they see a great idea that's happening outside of their uh, domain, and they, instead of learning and, and, and integrating with that community and, and becoming a full member of it, they co-op it. They take it for themselves and uh, change it into something. I think we could look at something like MS Test as a clear example of where that is a, a failure. Um, so on the Iron Ruby side, yes. So they're they're going against Rubinius. It's going to be very. It's going to be feature feature compatible with C version of Ruby, which means you can uh, take advantage of all the libraries that exist. In fact, Rails runs on it. It just runs really slow. Um, but yes, once it's there, I think that the first and foremost, I think people should look at it uh, if they're trying to test things on the framework that are uh, private or sealed. So there was a lot of hubbubble, right, that was going around about, um, hey, we can't uh, mock the HTTP handlers or something. I can't remember. Oh, the HTTP context. Because they're right? sealed? Yeah, they're private sealed. So you can't inherit from them, and mocking them is a Herculean task at best, and you really can't get in there and replace it the way you want. Can I ask a rhetorical question real quick? Go ahead. Why would anybody seal a class? Uh, that's a really great question, and you're going to have to get somebody who likes that keyword to <laughs> to give you an answer. Right. Uh, I, mean, I, I think access modifiers are really the true evil. Yeah. Um, and uh, I I can't. I, the only reason I would say mark a class private is you really don't want to expose it in the API for legal uh, reasons, as a courtesy maybe. to your developers or people who might use it. But otherwise, keep that stuff public. Yeah, really. Well, it almost strikes me as. People are embarrassed by their class, so they're hiding it. <laughs> I, I hope that's not the case. <laughs> they need to write a better unit test if you're that afraid of it. Yeah, this, I, I just can't think of a better reason. I, I, I think I some people do it in line with obfuscators, right? right so right. if something is private and it's sealed, many top-line obfuscators will turn it into this weird character thing, so you can't even recognize the method signature. Security and through I think obscurity. That's just uh, that's horrible. That that essentially is saying I don't trust you to use this. Right. It says I know better than any developer who's going to touch this code, and I just can't get behind any language that says that to me. Yeah, I, I just see it as a mistake. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Redgate, makers of Ant's Performance Profiler. You know what a performance profiler does. You run it, and it tells you where the bottlenecks are in your code. You can profile any .NET application, including ASP.NET Web Apps. So if you're a .NET developer of any kind, you want to find out where your code is choking, go to shrinkster.com slash 19OP, that's 19, the letter O, P, as in Paul, and check out Redgate's Ants Performance Profiler. You'll be glad you did. Anyway. You were making a point when I so rudely interrupted you. 
Oh, yeah. So Iron Ruby right. and Rails. Yes. Yeah. So that, I mean, they were using this conference-driven development style for a while. So, you know, a Rails comp would come up. They'd be like, okay, let's get Iron Ruby to run Rails. Uh, and they did. And it was slow. Um, but I would say a great entry point is testing. Now, I've heard rumblings, and hopefully somebody on the Iron Ruby team will write in a great letter saying that I'm absolutely right, and they're not looking to change this. But um, from a testing point of view, if you want to mock out certain classes on the CLR that are um, private and sealed, and you can't get to them any other way, you can actually mock that in Ruby, in Iron Ruby, as a full mock, and you will you won't be using a generated proxy version of that class. You will actually just be re-implementing the various members on that class that you want to mock. It gets you everything you've ever wanted in testing in a unit testing framework without having to leave, say, C sharp to get it done. You just have to pop out, create a little Iron Ruby class that does the stubbing for you or the mocking, and then call it from C sharp, and you should be all good to go. Huh. Yeah, in fact, on the Gestalt, uh, there was a MX Labs did a, a, a new project called Gestalt, in which it was basically trying to give you any DLR language in the context of the browser, right? So the browser, when you say a script tag, you're usually talking about JavaScript. That's what the browser talks. Well, what Gestalt's trying to do is give you DLR, so you get Python and Ruby in their Iron formats. So I, I actually did the um, some of the demos for that site, and one thing they wanted to do was falling snow. They wanted this nice, cute falling snow uh, effect. And um, I couldn't get it, because of this version of Iron Ruby, I couldn't get the inheritance to work. It was saying, uh, you know, uh, this user control can't be inherited for some reason. But that was just a small bug, and it was a much older Iron Ruby version. So I'm sitting around, and I say, well, what do I really want to do? Oh, all I want is an ellipse that can move. So I wanted one method and maybe four properties, a move method and a couple of properties to track its motion. Um, so all I did was instead of inheriting from Ellipse, which is private sealed, by the way, I simply opened Ellipse in the same namespace and just added my methods on. And then I was able to just move as many ellipses as I wanted to, happy as a clam. I didn't write a whole bunch of over, a whole bunch of cruft code that was a series of, of crazy inheritance. Uh, I didn't have to do any of that. I didn't have to in, implement a user control at all. All I had to do was open ellipse, put on what I wanted, and let it go. Hmm. Part of this is just coming up with an elegant solution to the problem, too. I think that's what all of this is. I think when you <laughs> ask the question at the beginning, uh, is software getting complex? And I, I would say, yes, it's getting complex, especially on the .NET side, because the abstractions are further and further away from your power center. The power center for a developer, the thing where the, the, thing where the chi is formed, right, is, uh, it, is your language. It's how you speak to the computer, right? Right. And if you just keep getting away and away and away from that that part of it, you're eventually going to get to a part where you it doesn't look anything like it should, that you're completely disconnected from the entire pipeline. What's going on? How can I talk to the computer in a way that it's going to understand and my user's going to understand? Uh, I think ASP.NET itself, the web forms version of it, is a great example of this. This is a problem in which it was trying to solve it in a way that the abstraction was broken. It just leaked all over the place. Yeah. So they were, they were taking this desktop meme and trying to make it a web meme. That doesn't work. It didn't work. 
Well, and, and it seems like ASP.NET is now moving away from that. Uh, MVC seems to be a much better approach to building something closer to the metal of building web apps. Absolutely. I think it's a wonderful addition to the family of products. I wish they would have realized this a lot sooner. Um, but, you know, that's the way you turn a big ship, right, is very slowly. Well, and even up to just a few months ago, they were talking about, don't worry, MVC is going to have relatively low adoption. We just wanted for the edge cases that we wanted a product for them. And it seems like a real storm around it now. People are really going nuts for MVC. Well, of course. I, I think whenever you get trapped uh, into looking at the solutions for the platform you're on, and it happens in any platform. Like, I get myopic about Ruby, right? I, I'm guilty of it just because that's where I'm at. Yeah, you've got the Ruby hammer, and you're looking for nails. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I, and But I will be fair. There are times where I will bounce out of it if I need to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, yeah. My, but in Ruby, I, all I see is nail, and I ask if whatever I'm handing, you know, holding, will respond to hit that nail. Right. And it usually ends up as true. Now, in Ruby, can you shell out and run managed code? Yeah, sure. So you can call assemblies from Ruby. Yeah. And I don't mean Iron Ruby. No, no, no. Yeah, you can you can shell out and do whatever you like. Hmm. You can go nuts. <laughs> You can call like regular assemblies. You don't have to write them as console apps and use standard in and standard out, right? You could do either one, but yeah, you can. Yeah, it just sounds like it's very inclusionary that you could go about this the way you want to. That's why I like it. That's why it works <laughs> for me. That's why I prefer to look at Ruby the language uh, for a problem than look for a tool to solve it. Uh, I mean, things like Windows Workflow Foundation to me seems large and verbose and XML driven. And if you're not using the XML, you're using a mountain of these crazy apps that were written to hopefully talk about the workflow in a way that maybe maps the way you want it to do. That is all cruft to me. I mean, I can write a, a state machine workflow using the, um, you know, access state machine gem in 10 lines of code and be done with it. And it's fully unit tested. Yeah, there's just a better way to go about that. Well, in it, when we talk, going back to this complexity issue, I think we were really talking about, you know, the big difference between uh, there's 71 different MVC implementations for a PHP. And the situation we have at Microsoft is that this is not about there's lots of choices to do the same thing. This is there's a whole bunch of ways to doing different things. And workflow is a great example of that. Of Do I need this? Am I saving effort here if I go this way? Yeah, and that's a tough question to answer. And when I was in that space, a lot of times we would always end up on let's try the tool first. And it worked great for the 80% 80, the 80 of what we needed. And the minute we got to that 20, I ended up having to back it out and put in all custom plumbing. Yeah. And that's a lot of time. Or some kludgy hybrid, you know, and, and it became completely unmaintainable. And the fact that I couldn't accurately and actively unit test, get 100% unit test coverage over all the pieces that I was writing, because I might have been working with something, say, like SharePoint, um, it made it impossible for me to even feel confident about the code I was shipping. Those things to me are, are just black, black spots in that framework that I really wish would get alleviated. And I think something like Iron Python, Iron Ruby, they may be the key for at least me, the way I look at software, helping me uh, be happier on that platform. Where do you see the differences between Python and Ruby in this? Because they both seem to be lumped together to, in some degrees. Well, I mean, they share more idioms than, than say, 
I, I mean, they're both dynamic languages. That's right. really it. But they 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 have similar approaches to similar to certain problems, and they have differing approaches and different problems. I don't want to detract from Python by just saying Ruby. I think that's why I I tend to try and talk about them together. Mm-hmm. Have you talked to John uh, Lamb about uh, about Iron Ruby at all? Unfortunately, no, I have not. Is there anything you want to tell him? <laughs> uh, I, I get more resources on yeah. your team. <laughs> uh, I, I would like to see this. I would like to see the DLR treated with the same respect as the next product that they're trying to sell. Unfortunately, I don't think they think the market is there for it. Um, so like the Oslo team, I don't know how many people are on that team, but it seems like it's gotten a lot much, uh, a lot more attention and hype than say Iron Python, which just is well past its two year old version birthday, right? It's 2.0 right. version. Um, so there are things that you can do and you can start leveraging an Iron Python if you want to, that you don't have to wait for a product to solve that problem. You could actually solve that problem at a language level and be well on your merry way and something that is flexible and maintainable. So what are some of your other favorite technologies, Leon? I know JSON is a big, big one for you, right? Well, JavaScript in general is huge for me. Uh, I've always believed in in the power of that particular uh, language. Um, And I'm interested to see how people are starting to use it in their solutions. Um, One particular piece of technology that I'm speaking on um, soon is called Titanium by Accelerator. And uh, they're actually building out native mobile solutions, so native iPhone, native Android, using a basically a JavaScript bridge. So you write the app in JavaScript, uh, and it compiles down to native Objective-C or whatever it turns into on the Cocoa side. And then, no kidding. Yeah. Oh, and it's amazing. They're doing a great job. The entire stack is open source. So, you know, if they go in a direction you don't like, fork it, go nuts. You can, it's all on GitHub. But it's a great idea. Well, and isn't isn't it interesting that they've got iPhone and Android listed here, but no Win Mobile? <laughs> now, there's a big push from the community, including myself, to see if they can get that Win Mobile support as well. Uh, there are other teams that are doing it too, like uh, Row Mobile, RHO Mobile. They're doing multi-platforms, so they support Palm Pre and all that. But it's not native; it, it boils down to like a web. They use the web browser and all that. We are in an interesting place now where we've never had a better mobile platform development out there than right now. It's just incredible. And people are trying to make great tools for this. And I, the one group I don't see doing anything here is Microsoft. Yeah, from uh, from the OS perspective or for the tools to build for it? For, yeah, from the tooling perspective. like Yeah, right. The mobile OS, let's not even talk about that. Yeah. But a problem, of course, here, I guess, is that they can't go hand in hand. Because the Windows Mobile platform hasn't been going well, the Windows Mobile development tools haven't been going well. Well, and there's some nascent things going on there, too, I think you're going to hear about soon. And I don't know what that is, or nor can I speak to it, but they, they've sort of been hibernating a little bit. But, uh. Well, I'd also, I think, I think they have all the pieces to make it work really well. Um, they've got a great, you know, if they can get a great mobile version of the CLR, I mean, I know, I know they have the compact edition, but it's really lacking in certain features. Um, but if they can get a great version of that, maybe be able to run something like Silverlight 3 on it, 
then I think if you can have people targeting web apps and whatnot, that would be a great first step for like a native implementation. Um, but that's a possibility. We'll see. Yeah, I think you're right that Silverlight could save the Windows Mobile platform. Oh, it definitely could. I would. I mean, it's great. It's compact. It's simple. People are used to that Silverlight version of the CLR. I think put that on the mobile phone, you can really deliver any kind of uh, any kind of user experience that you could want to. And then you have language choice. You have platform. Cho- oh, it's great. I think that would yeah, be wonderful. I do too. And I think I think they ought to stop uh, making. I don't know. Uh, the uh, stop leaving the look and feel up to the phone vendors. I mean, just pick something and go with it. You know, so we don't have to drive through fifty thousand menus with a stylus to get to place a phone call or something. You know, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, funny place. Is there is there room for Ruby in the mobile development? I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. I know on the I've heard on the on the JRuby side that they've. Um, that they're targeting getting a Ruby emulator going for for mobile for Android, um, but yeah, I don't really know. And I think Mac Ruby, which is the Mac version, uh, it's, it's like a Cocoa Bridge included in it, um, is looking to get onto the iPhone as well. But I, I mean, I think it's one of those things that we'll see. It's a pretty resource constrained device. Yeah. Uh, and Ruby can, yes, of course, be. A little slow. So in that, depends on the device. Maybe the iPhone can handle it. Maybe an Android device can handle it. I don't know. Well, I also get the sense that the constraints are going away. You know, ARM announced this year that next year they'll be releasing multi-core processors for cell phones. Right? Wow. Like, <laughs> I just don't, I feel like in the next couple of years, there's going to be as much horsepower in our PDA as there is in a typical desktop machine. Well then, we'll have this. That, then we have the same argument that we had in, for Ruby ten years ago, right? Right. So Ruby wasn't ready because it wasn't fast enough. Well, the machines uh, caught wind of it. We sped up, and then it happened. Right. I think if Ruby doesn't catch on for the mobile platform, it certainly might be whatever Ruby's next predecessor is. I think I ought to start working on the portable nuclear reactor to power all these devices. Because <laughs> using cold you know, fusion, like if you could put it on your hip, you know, and you can. <laughs> Just have a little reactor, you know, maybe some insulation so you don't get too hot, you know. You can warm your coffee that way. <laughs> warm your put coffee. It on top. Just a little bit of plutonium is all you need. Just a little <laughs> bit. What? What do you mean I can't get on the airplane? What? <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. Well, you've sufficiently kicked our ass for an hour. That's great, man. <laughs> well, anytime you guys need to be whipped into shape, you call me up. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> So what are you working on next there, uh, Leon? Where are we going to see you? Oh, let's see. Um, well, this week is probably out because it won't be recorded, but I'll be at the Ruby Hoedown. And then coming up, I'm at the Cincinnati Agile Roundtable uh, talking about uh, enterprise-level uh, integration testing with Cucumber. Cucumber. Yes. What's Cucumber? I'll probably be doing a few more of those talks, hopefully, till the end of the year. And I think I'm slated to do some precompiler stuff at CodeMash this year on TDD. You can't just drop a word like cucumber in our laps and not define it. What is that? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, cucumber. Cucumber is a uh, it's like a it's a framework in Ruby that uh, does basically behavior driven development. Does a okay. It's just in that syntax style. It's a great way to leverage um, your business domain, uh, those business experts, and write out their, their acceptance criteria in a language that they provide that you can then execute against real Ruby code. Actually, you can execute it against anything. You can use Cucumber with C Sharp and Java, all of it. Awesome. 
Pictures info at cubes.info. Thank you, Leon. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Come back again, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a van by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a